1: We've got the Roman emperors complaining, I think it was Trajan who complained that these these matrons, Roman matrons wearing this diaphanous stuff were absolutely ruining the Roman economy because uh, to get it they had to pay gold and gold was going the other way. Gold and glass and things like that. So this is really the proper beginning of globalisation.
2: That was Barry Cunliffe giving a talk at our 2016 History Weekend. For this week's episode, we're going to be broadcasting a lecture from our 2016 History Weekend in Winchester. The speaker was Professor Barry Cunliffe, one of Britain's best known archaeologists, and the author of a number of books, including Britain Begins, The Celts, and By Steppe, Desert, and Ocean. For his talk in Winchester's Ashburton Hall, he focused on the subject of the last of those books, explaining how the vast Eurasian landscape impacted on the people living there over several millennia.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I I was just saying when I came in that um, this building uh, is very close to my heart because when I was a boy of about 14 or 15, this was uh, a long time ago now, 1954, 1955, I actually dug uh, on this site before this building was put up and we found the first evidence of Iron Age occupation uh, in Winchester, more or less just below your feet now. So um, it's, uh, you know, coming home for me. Uh, But a very, very different... uh, Well, it it makes the point, doesn't it, that archaeologists work on um, very different levels, and that's one of the huge joys of being an archaeologist. Um, You're right down in the mud, down here, uh, scraping away at post holes and pot shards and things like that, totally focused on the minutiae of, of archaeology. One moment, and then uh, you're thinking, you're, you can think if you wish, uh, on um scale of big history, uh, the whole of Eurasia uh, and the period from about 10,000 BC to about 1300 AD. Um, which is what this book is about. Now, of course, in 45 minutes, 50 minutes, I can't give a blow-by-blow account of everything that happened in Eurasia in that period. So I'm just going to select out a few of the things that interest me particularly uh, about... Uh, this area and this time what it can tell us uh, about ourselves and about, about history. And I think one can sort of start off by saying that history is, for me anyway, um, is the interaction of human agency uh, with environment, and it is simply that it 's nothing more than that. Uh, I was accused of being a marxist when I, I, I said that um, if that 's marxism 'm perfectly happy with it, uh, because um, uh, it, 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 human agency and environment, uh, the environment controlling and facilitating. Uh, what what humans uh, do, and humans with their own structure, um, their own um, genetics, uh, wanting to act in a particular way. So let's just pull that apart for a moment and um, look at environment. This is a bit of Tajikistan, actually on the border of Afghanistan, right up in the Pamir Mountains right in the sort of heart of of Eurasia. And you can see an environment there uh, that is just usable by by humans, Um, camel train uh, passing through this area. It is manageable as a route way. As it stands at the moment, it's only just marginal. Lower the temperature, two or three degrees, and it would be impossible uh, to to use that environment. Raise the temperature by two or three degrees, it would be possible for people to actually live there and farm there and and, um, make a living there. So environment um, and climate are very delicately balanced in much of the world for much of the time, and it's that that I want to talk about. Little changes in environment spurring on sort of, or facilitating major changes in human behaviour. Uh, so environment on one side, and then humans on the other. Here's one that someone excavated um, a, a, a few years ago, Varna, uh, on the shore of the Black Sea, in what is now Bulgaria. Now, um, humans... Are extremely interesting in that they um, are. We're we're all um, victims of our our genetics, hardwired into us, is um, our constraints on our behaviour. Humans share with animals a whole range of things. First of all, a a human, um, human animal, desires to feed itself. Then it desires to reproduce. It desires to look after its young. It desires to define territory and social grouping. Um, And we share all that with with the animal world. But humans um, differ from the animal world in in two particular ways, in many ways, but in two particular ways. One is that we have the capacity for um, abstract thought uh, and creative thought. And that leads to the building of myths, to the creation of religious beliefs, and so on. I'm not going to talk about that aspect today. The other aspect of, of humanity hardwired into us is this desire to acquire. Uh, animals don't have it, not, or at least not to the degree that we do. We want to acquire things, as that person has done, that man has done there, and we want to acquire knowledge. Uh, and that sort of pervades, um, human behavior, the desire to acquire. Um, that, that particular man has acquired, um, copper axes, which are a sign of his status. He's acquired quite a lot of gold, which he's hung around himself. He's acquired, um, rare stone, which has been made into scepters and which he uses as symbols of authority and, and so on. And, you know, look around us today. We've acquired things. We wear uh, watches that perhaps have come from Italy or something like that or from somewhere exotic. Um, many of us are wear- well, Many of you, not me, uh, are-, are wearing jewellery, coloured stone uh, or-, or gold, as-, as this man does. Um, we like these things. It is a hardwired, as I say, into us. We like to collect this material and we use it uh, both the um, physical material we've acquired and the knowledge we've acquired to maintain and build a status within our social group. And I think that, to me, is um, the, the main motivator uh, for a lot of human activity, as, as we will see. Now, um, geography. Um, Geography is um, crucial, I think, to uh, the development of history. And I've deliberately chosen for this book that I've written um, a projection which is slightly unusual. Um, It encompasses the area that I'm interested in, the whole of Eurasia. But it's seen from a Eurasian point of view rather than from a Eurocentric point of view. And uh, what I'm trying to say there is, okay, we live in Europe... um, And we think a lot about Europe, uh, but it's very marginal. It's stuck out right out there on the extreme of the Eurasian continent. Um, It is a part of the scheme and the system, but it's only a small part. And uh, the whole sort of flavour of my book is to try and make us um, see Europe in a proper world context rather than in this distorted context. Uh, which, which we have of it through time. Now, the other thing the map shows, which um, is, I, I, I think, uh, important, is um, the rocks in the land, the mountain chains, which are created um, by plate tectonics, as, as you know um, the world is um, made up of a series of these plates of land floating on a magma and these plates of land move around on that magma and bump into each other and, and create, uh, where they bump in they create great rocks of land uh, like for example the, the mountain chain that runs all the way through here, through the Himalayas um, right through um, uh, Iran and, and Turkey and, and the Alps and so on. Um, that rock is is created by plates of the Indian plate and the African plate and the Arabian plate bumping in to the Eurasian plate. Um, And that um, gives Eurasia a a very interesting structure, an east-west structure, which maps onto, of course, climatic zones. And um, if you... uh, Let's just look at a climatic zone. There are the climatic zones. I don't want to overemphasise it, but you've got the zone of deserts, you've got the zone of steppe, and then you've got the zone of heavy woodland at the top, um, created by you know n- nearness to um, the equator and so on, it's a, a simple factor. But the fact that these um, the the rucks in the land, the corrugations in the land, run in the same way uh, as the um, ecological zones um, means that. Um, Uh, Eurasia is a a land of mobility. People can go east and west very, very, very easily. And that's what this story is about. Totally different to America, where um, the um, ecological zones are, of course, related to the equator, but the rocks and the land are related to totally different plates. It's a north-south. And um, that's why I think Eurasia has uh, developed socially, culturally, uh, in, in the past, in the distant past, um, far more um, than, than America. America was, was not uh, a place a- around which you moved easily. Eurasia was a place where people could move very, very easily. And it's about those movements that I want to talk. Now, we'll start off with um, uh, two precocious areas um, where the environment is so special uh, that humans were able to develop very fast. And one is the the valleys of the main Chinese rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow River there, Southeast Asia, and the other is Southwest Asia um, around um, what is uh, Palestine, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, uh, and um, Iraq, the the what we or, or used to call in school anyway the Fertile Crescent. And um, those two bits are very, very special areas um, because they are in... Um, Pleasant climatic zones, and they are um, amel- the climate is ameliorated by proximity to oceans. So plant and animal growth is is very prolific in those two zones. And as the ice moved away, so one got um, these two zones developing fast. And um, you can see here this is the um, southwest uh, southwestern. Asian zone, um, uh, the Fertile Crescent. Um, uh, as, as the ice shifted north, further north, further north, and the climate gradually improved, you got the, the growth in that sort of coloured brown zone of a whole range of um, v- very nutritious grasses, uh, wheats and barleys and things like that, uh, primitive wheats and barleys. Um, and in that zone, animals um, developed fast. That was an area of sheep and goat uh, wild sheep and goat and pig and 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 cattle. Um, so there was a, a, a lot of animal and plant life there, and the going was good for humans. Uh, and what we see there is, from about twelve thousand BC, we see a very um, rapid development of hunting communities, hunting-gathering communities, um, who find it so easy to hunt and gather. Um, They're surrounded by um, these wild foods. That they've got time. They settled down, and that's one of the archaeological sites, actually, right in the heart of the area where the worst fighting in Syria is now going on, uh, Abu Huraira um, and it shows the, um, uh, the archaeological traces of these early hunting groups, pits and huts and post holes of their settlements. They settled for quite long periods of time uh, in single places and built quite large settlements. Uh, they also had time uh, to indulge in art. Uh, here is um, the handle of um, a reaping knife carved as a, a little animal, for example. So life was really good there. But... Um, Uh, Somewhere about 9,600 BC, uh, there was a sudden change in climate. Um, There was a downturn in climate, and um, it became colder and drier in much of that area. And it it didn't destroy the animal and plant wealth, but it, it decreased it dramatically. So humans had to respond. And they responded in a simple way. Instead of just hunting and gathering They had to look after the crops more. They had to look after the animals more. And this is the beginning of domestication and cultivation, the beginning of farming. And it was kick-started by this this change in uh, in the weather patterns. Um, Change in in climate is extremely important. Um, And uh, so we get the beginnings of Neolithic starting there, beginnings of farming starting there somewhere somewhere um, well, let's say around 9,000 9, BC, it's, it's beginning to get underway. And then, um, remarkably, um, it spreads very, very rapidly because um, uh, the, the resource is, is reduced and people tend to move out of that, that dark green area, the Fertile Crescent, and they move into adjacent areas and then they keep moving. And those arrows, you can, you can see where Europe is there, and we come right round to um, India here. This is the beginnings of India and the Indus Valley. Um, you get um, the movements of farming communities very, very wide and, and very fast. They start moving around 7,000 BC. They move both by land and by sea. You actually get little boats painted on some of their pots. Uh, And in Europe, they move by land and by sea. And by uh, 5000 BC, so only 2000 years, uh, by 5000 BC, um, the the art of farming, cultivation, has spread from that heartland to the edge of the the Indus Valley, to the edge of the desert in in India, and right up to the Atlantic. Incredibly fast spread. Now, this area is exceptional. Uh, in that farming spread fast uh, over very large areas. It was constrained by forest, it was constrained by by deserts, Uh, but it is a large area, thousands of kilometers. And from then on, Um, That was an era of precocious development. You get the old uh, civilizations of Babylonians and the Assyrians and so on. Uh, You get the Mycenaeans and Minoans and the Greeks and the Romans and the Byzantines and so on. Um, And and the Sasanians and Parthians. Um, And um, it's almost as though um, the, the sort of baton of civilization is passed from one part of that to another part to another part to another part. Uh, within that whole zone. So um, you get civilizations dying down, new civilizations springing up, and ending, really, uh, with Western Europe uh, around 1400, uh, the Atlantic Europe as being the sort of main center of innovation at the beginnings of the time of the great uh, explorations by sea. So um, uh, the very special quality of the Western end. Now let's go to the Eastern end, this is China, um, where uh, again you see uh, at the end of the Ice Age, uh, hunter gatherers beginning to move into these two river valleys: the Yangtze River, which is the southern one, where you grow, where there is um, uh, rice growing naturally, uh, and the Yellow River, it's the northern one, uh, where there is millet growing naturally, and. Uh, um, people are, uh, and there are wild pigs which you hunt, there are wild chickens which you hunt. Um, it's it's, it's a, a, a good environment again as the ice has gone away and the temperature has warmed up. Um, and um, so you see people beginning, uh, populations beginning to, to grow, and then suddenly again this uh, climatic deterioration, about 9,600, forces the people in exactly the same way to start to cultivate, to start to domesticate. So it kicks them over into farming. And you get farming villages Jinglonga, uh, here with little rectangular houses. This is in the, uh, in the, uh, in the um, Yellow River Valley. People living together in, in farming communities. So the development of farming uh, in the two extremes of Eurasia kick-started by changes in climate Uh, and people developing their own natural resources uh, and domesticating, in this case, pig and domesticating rice and domesticating millet. Right, so much for the ends. Now, between, um, in the green area, the the bright green area of my map, um, I I think you can probably um, see it reasonably well, um, uh, is the great band of the steppe. Uh, which is a most um, amazing area and an area that uh, I think is uh, it's one of the centres of a whole range of, of developments which have affected the world. Um, the, the, um, it runs from uh, actually Manchuria and Mongolia there, uh, right the way through the Altai Mountains, uh, through the Kazakh area, Pontic Steppes around the Black Sea, um, Caspian and Black Sea, and the last little blob at the top is the Great Hungarian Plain. The last bit of step is in the Great Hungarian Plain. So it's rather like a huge open corridor of, of grassland, and, and there is the step. Um, I wanted to experience it, and we went to Mongolia and and... I wanted to see it as people did, so got on a horse and just rode across the steppe. It's the most painful thing I've ever done, but um, uh, I still bear the scars. But it it was the most amazing experience because um, I'd read a lot about the steppe. There are lots of travellers talking about the steppe. Um, Chekhov has written a brilliant story, a short story called The Steppe, which which characterises it. Um, And what they all write about is the sheer monotony Of this landscape, and how it goes on and on and on and on, and it draws you to move. And everyone who writes about it says this is a landscape of movement. You're made to go on. And certainly, you know, when wandering across this bit of Mongolia, I wanted to get down into that valley. I wanted to get up onto those hills. I wanted to see what was beyond the hills and so on. You, you are just drawn on. It is a landscape where people move. You don't stop. You don't grow a grain or anything. Um, it is um, pasture land uh, and uh, a land w- w- where you are constantly on the move. And what makes it uh, possible, of course, is the horse. Um, this is uh, an area where the horse uh, developed naturally. Um, and these are absolutely amazing. These are wild, uh, wild horses in the wild in Mongolia, Prezvolski's horses. The Prezvolski horse from which our modern horse uh, develops. Uh, They're quite small um, and, well, you can see what what they're like. Um, And it's natural to the um, steppe. It's got the kind of nose that can push snow out of the way and get at the grass. Um, It it can live in extreme steppe circumstances quite well. And we went up to see them. I'd read a lot about uh, horse behavior, um, and I'd experienced it as well. uh, uh, but um, we went up um, this magic night um, up on onto a, a hill to look down uh, and see the wild horses come down um, in their um, harem groups uh, uh, to water, um, and they're, they're brought down by the lead mare as the lead mare, and it's a number of mares, their foals, and one stallion, um, and that's that's the natural uh, grouping of the, the, um, the, the animals. That, that is a typical horse group. Um, now, um, and, and they all behaved exactly as, as uh, I, I'd read about, which was marvellous, uh, including the stallion. There, there he is at the top. And as, as um, they moved away, we, we sort of followed them up the hill. Uh, and the stallion did what stallions always do. He positioned himself between his mares and danger, which was me. Um, so, quietly grazing, but um, behaving exactly as horses should behave. And this is what made, uh, has made the steppe cultures, through time, um, uh, develop in the way they have the ability uh, to um, manage uh, the horse, uh, the animal of that, that environment. The, the earliest evidence of um, horse domestication is on the steppe about 4,500 BC, and then at about soon after 4,000 BC, um, uh, this excavation is of a site called Botai in the Kazakh steppe. And he, the uh, um, Kazakh excavator, there is is digging um, a mass of horse bones, which um, uh, uh, meat bones. In Botai, the horse was the main source of milk and meat. There were domesticated horses there, um, but uh, you had to go and round them up and bring them in and so on, and uh, milk them or 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 kill, um, or kill them for meat. Uh, but uh, why what, what Bataille is so interesting uh, is a brilliant piece of um, stud, a brilliant study um, by um, uh, an American called David Anthony, uh, looking at the premolar teeth from, from this site, the, the horse premolars, was able to show uh, that some of them had a bevel on, the, the tooth would normally be like that, and some of them were beveled there and there uh, and, and there. And that bevel was caused by a bit. And if the horse had a bit in its mouth, um, then it was being ridden. So um, this is the earliest evidence. We've got around about 3,700 of um, someone deciding to jump on the back of a horse and ride it. And uh, that, that, to me, is, is one of the great moments in human history, uh, the beginning of the, uh, the human-horse symbiosis. Um, the, the two acting as one. So there, there is the earliest trace of it. And the horse, of course, um, once you ride it, you can round up more horses, you can go greater distances, um, uh, you can be much more mobile. It, it frees up a whole range of behaviour. And um, there is a, um, an, it's absolutely timeless. There is a, a scene uh, on, in Mongolia, we just simply stopped uh, by the roadside uh, and asked these ladies if we could photograph their mare milking. Um, and um, they live off horses. Uh, they take the, uh, they, Their mares are um, hobbled. They take the young up to the mare. The mare lactates. They milk the mare. They do this six times a day. And then they ferment the milk, which is um, a, a part of the diet, um, which unfortunately they offer you. Um, uh, but um, it, but it, it is timeless. Um, Homer talks about the mare milkers of the steppe. Uh, on on the north side of the the Black Sea, and here are mere Mil- Milkers now, and I, I've only when I got home and I was looking at this image, um, uh, the you possibly can't quite read it, but the young lady with the t-shirt uh, on the back of her t-shirt uh, is. an a series of English slogans and the lower one reads History repeats itself, which um, I, I thought was almost put on for my benefit there. But, um, uh, but um, th- then, so the horse is absolutely central and this, this sort of 3,700, 3,500, uh, the beginning of the riding of the horse frees up uh, the human to behave in, in a totally different way uh, to the way he behaved or she behaved before. The next stage in this crucial development also takes place on the steppe. That top left map you probably can't make too much sense of, um, but um, between the in the little bright green bit, that's at the end of the Ural Mountains, uh, and um, come down further south, and there's the Aral Sea. So um, it, it, it sort of locates you in the middle of the Kazakh steppe. Um, and There, there somewhere around 2100-ish BC, um, there was a slight improvement um, or slight change in climate, and it became damper and and slightly warmer, and that meant in the river valleys, uh, the pasture was much, much lusher. Uh, and that enabled people uh, to begin to make permanent settlements in some of the river valleys and you can see one of them there um, this, this little uh, the, the river valley um, with its with its pastures along it, and the little cluster of houses there and These people were Um, able to live extremely well. They didn't have to move too far around. Uh, They moved with their animals, but they came back to their main site. This is around 2100. Uh, And you can see how well they lived. Uh, That pile of bones there, if I can just get the figures, is composed of six horses, four cows, and two rams. And it represents a funerary feast uh, for someone who was being buried in in, um, one of the nearby tombs. Uh, And as uh, the archaeologist pointed out, that would produce something like 6,000 pounds of meat, uh, which could feed 3,000 quite hungry people. So it gives you some idea of perhaps the size of the social groups that might come together uh, and their ability uh, to slaughter large numbers of animals for feasting and so on. And this particular group uh, developed... Uh, they had wheeled vehicles uh, solid wheeled vehicles, but they developed the next stage, which was the two wheeled spoked wheeled chariots and these are two of the tombs from this uh it 's called a Sintashta culture, two of the tombs where you 've got just the bottoms uh, of the um the spoked wheels uh in uh, in in the um uh, little pits dug in the bottom of the tomb chamber. Um, and you can imagine the, the the base of the vehicle there, the pole, and then the two horses on either side. And they've actually killed the two horses and buried them with the dead person. So the spoked wheel, um, which is a major uh, development, a major technological development, starting just there in that one spot, uh, somewhere around 2100 and spreading from there incredibly rapidly, spreading south down into um, the area of the, um, uh, the Fertile Crescent, where the chariot is taken up. It's a, an elite piece of equipment. It's taken up very quickly, spreads um, west, is taken up by the Mycenaeans about 1600 BC, and it spreads east and is taken up by the Chinese about 1300 BC. So here is a, a technological invention Um, which um, spreads across Eurasia very, very quickly. And I'm not suggesting people jumped on these and rode them across the the steppe and the deserts and and conquered or anything like that. Uh, Here was an invention which could spread through the the patterns of connectivity, the exchange systems that existed very fast, and because it was so special, be taken up by society. Um, uh, The... Chinese, for example, here, here's a Chinese example. Um, um, the, the map shows the distribution of chariot burials in China. It was very much an elite form of burial in China, and they're a beautiful example of the chariot and the two horses um, uh, on either side of the pole, and the charioteer laid uh, out in the front there. And here, um, an even more brilliant piece of excavation. Um, this is about uh, that's about twelve hundred BC. This is about six hundred BC, where you can see the spoke wheels of the chariots. All the chariot bases here. The wheels have been taken off and put to the side. So uh, this is in a very, uh, very important elite burial. Someone could afford lots of chariots and lots of charioteers and so on. So um, again, a development on the step uh, that pervades society in all directions. And course we get them coming into Britain uh, in the Iron Age, somewhere about uh, 500 BC, and we find them in in the British Iron Age. The next development that takes place here is also, I think, kicked off by a change in environment. Uh, And again, it's a similar one, a slightly wetter, slightly warmer, um, giving rise to um, more vegetation, Uh, uh, an easier life and um, it's a bit difficult to locate but um, uh, most of this map is Mongolia Uh, and when you go um, north you're getting into uh, Siberia, southern Russia and uh, it's in that part of Siberia that we find this next development which um, I've called the development of the predatory nomad. Before this people were nomadic but from this period onwards about 900, 800 BC, you can see uh, nomadic groups, um, presumably men, moving away from their homelands, home leaving, uh, looking after the animals to the, the, the young, the old, um, and the women, uh, and going off and raiding uh, and creating a heroic society and then coming back with the spoils of the raid, which is usually horses and something like that. So, um, uh, so, so life was so good that one tranche of the population, the, the arrogant young men, uh, could get on their horses and can go and raid and rape and all the rest of it. Um, and this is the beginning of then, the, the, the mobile nomad, the beginning of cavalry in fact, because these groups rode together uh, and were a horde riding together. This is the first time we see it. So, in other words, cavalry, and think how important cavalry was. uh, Cavalry developed on the steppe here about 900, 800 BC, and very soon spread across the world. Eventually, the horse spread to America and and changed the whole of um, uh, the relationship between um, Indians and and their, their, their natural environment, um, Native Indians and in the natural environment. Uh, at um, uh, one of the burials here, uh, this is one of the great burials with a, a huge um, burial mound with timber structure, the main pits with the very rich burial with a lot of gold, lots of animal imagery here, the, um, the main chieftain and, and his wife buried there, and a, a large number of horses buried around. And archaeologists looking at these horses um, see that the horse gear is, is all uh, quite different. And what you're seeing here is horses brought in from um, hundreds of miles around uh, to be killed at the moment of this man's burial. So um, he had um, authority over a huge area. Um, He was able to to command a massive, massive area. And this beginning of predatory nomadism um, is the beginning of a long, long story, starting about 800 and we'll... Um, Well, let's just take it a a stage further. Um, uh, I, I won't expand on this too much, but from that moment onwards, we get lots of movements of nomads, mainly to the west, across the steppe, and into Europe. And this represents one of them, the movement of the Chimerians and the Scythians moving across the steppe, Um, to between the Caspian and the Black Sea, settling there in the steppe, moving into Europe, settling in the steppe in the great Hungarian plain and raiding up from there uh, into Bronze Age Europe. And those little red spots show um, their horse gear and their arrows where they uh, were raiding and, and, and trading. This is the beginning, then, of, of a story of movements from east to west of nomadic peoples pushing into Europe and affecting the um, history of Europe. And here on these marvellous, um, these are Scythian pieces, the Scythians were part of this movement. These are Scythian gold vessels where you see these lovely images of Scythians Typical horseman wearing trousers, and in this case, he's um, putting the string around his recurved bow. And the uh, horseman with with a recurved bow, um, able to ride off, then turn around and shoot arrows back at anyone chasing them, was was a phenomenon that a number of classical writers wrote about. They, they were impressed by this, this ability. So, um, predatory nomadism. Now, let, let's just stop the step at this point, and quickly go to another environment, the desert. Um, South of the steppe, you see the green steppe, south of the steppe um, are the various deserts, uh, starting with the Gobi Desert um, and then the Taklamakan Desert. The Taklamakan Desert is the western part of China, um, just north of the Tibetan Plateau there. Uh, There there is a satellite image of it. It's a a really distinctive desert. Um, And Um, We know that um, there were people living around the edges of the desert in settlements all the way around, this this is it, all around the edges of it um, from the Bronze Age onwards and it became a very desirable area. The Chinese uh, in the Han Dynasty moved in and appropriated the whole lot because uh, these little settlements all around the, the deserts um, desert edges, uh, were the, um, the networks through which commodities moved, and they were desperate to get commodities from the West. We'll come back to that in a moment. This is a real desert, um, and quite a frightening desert. Again, I felt I ought to, to sort of experience it, so we crossed it. Or we went round it, and then we came across it. Um, st- starting out in a sandstorm, which was uh, quite nasty. But here you see it, it is a, a proper desert. And um, this is one of my wonderful cheat uh, photographs because. Um, just beyond uh, the, the top limit is the tarmacked road with our four-by-fours on it. Um, uh, and, uh, but it, it's a good photograph, nevertheless. But uh, you know, it, it is a, a real barrier. And had the Chinese not built these um, major um, you know, three roads, in fact, across the desert, it would be quite impossible uh, uh, to cross it, um, or very, very difficult to cross it safely even now. Um, so, But the, around the edges of the desert, um, people uh, lived and uh, died uh, and traded. And this is a brilliant piece of preservation uh, on one of these uh, desert sites. This is a cemetery uh, dating to 2000 BC where everything, all the organic material is perfectly preserved. Um, The vertical uh, markers for the graves, the graves themselves all, all wrapped up um, and, and the fences around. And here at a, a nearby cemetery is, is the quality of the preservation. This is a very dry and very salt and all the organics are preserved. This lady dates to about 2000 BC. Um, She's wearing, when you see her hair, uh, she's wearing a felt cap. She's got a feather in the felt cap. She's got leather boots and this lovely um, blanket, a coarse woven uh, blanket over her, and a big um, pile of of corn, grain, uh, on on her stomach uh, where she was buried. So um, people living around the the desert edge um, and uh, trading with each other Um, From certainly 2000 BC. Um, And By um, the period of the Han Dynasty, so we're talking about um, starting around 200 to 100 BC, well, about 100 BC, let's say, um, the Chinese had spread out and were colonizing uh, this desert. They were putting uh, military groups to command the routes, and the routes were developing, and these are the Silk Roads that we we read about, uh, the routes between China and the West, at the time when the Roman Empire was developing uh, and commodities were passing in increasing quantities. And one of the main commodities uh, that the West wanted was silk. Here is a bolt of silk. Um, It's, in fact, broken. uh, But it's a wrapped up bundle of silk. And it was found in one of these desert sites. And here are um, tallies for trading silk. Um, and what, what ha- seems to have happened is that um, the Han Chinese uh, put military detachments in each of the, the villages uh, around the uh, Taklamakan Desert and paid them uh, with bolts of silk, uh, and they... Uh, traded the box of silk with the local people for the foods and commodities they want, and the local people uh, traded it on as part of this, this network of, of communication. So a bundle of silk uh, will have started in China and changed hands probably hundreds of times before it eventually got into the Roman world. And then we've got the Roman emperors um, complaining. I think it was Trajan who complained that these these matrons, Roman matrons wearing this diaphanous stuff were absolutely ruining the Roman economy uh, because uh, to get it, they had to pay gold. Uh, And gold was going the other way, gold and glass, Things like that. So this is really um, the, the proper beginning of globalization. Um, but I, I suggested that silk was passing from hand to hand, um, rather than any one person taking it over long distances. People did move over long distances, and I just want to show you this this one. It's the red line on on, the, on that map. Um, uh, the travel of someone called Fa Xiang. Um, who was a Chinese uh, Buddhist who um, about 400 A.D., uh, decided that um, Buddhism had spread uh, along the green lines. Buddhism had spread from India, from the, um, uh, the Ganges Valley, um, through the trade routes, through the Taklamakan Desert to China, and by the sea through the Bay of Bengal, uh, again into the South China Sea, the green arrows. So Buddhism uh, had... had um, knowledge of Buddhism had spread. But Faxiang um, wanted... Uh, original Buddhist texts. So he started at Xiang, um, just up there, and he made this uh, journey, which I, I sort of followed, in fact, from uh, Xiang uh, to Dunhuang, which is where the great Buddhist monastery was. There it is, with had lots of books and things in it when it was exploited uh, by um, archaeologists in the nineteenth century. Um, And then he went through the Taklamakan Desert. He crossed the Taklamakan Desert, as as I did, and went up to Kashgar, which is the extreme Western extremity of China now. And then he crossed the Pamir Mountains, Um, down into the um, upper part of the Ganges Valley and then all the way down the Ganges Valley uh, collecting manuscripts all the way he went, collecting Buddhist manuscripts. When he got to so roughly Calcutta, he took to the sea and came down to another Buddhist site in Sri Lanka, uh, collected more manuscripts, then took to the sea again and eventually got home. Now, this was 400 A.D., uh, so you can see how mobile people could be at that stage. Mobile by land, but mobile by sea as well. And they had this sense of geography uh, that um, he was never uh, worried about getting home. And uh, with without... Um, uh, maps or anything like that or, or um, Google Earth, he, he managed to um, plan his route back home and he arrived home as a great hero laden down with these Buddhist manuscripts. Um, so people were moving on, on a large scale. Now um, back very quickly to the step. Um, I said that, this, um, that these predatory nomads had started to spread out of the steppe, and many of them, um, they, they did spread into China, they spread into India, but many of them went along the steppe into Europe. Um, in uh, about the time of Faxiang, um, we find the Huns moving out of roughly Mongolia again, uh, moving down uh, to the Black Sea um, and uh, moving into Europe. And Attila the Hun, um, being the scourge of of, of the Romans, uh, Attila uh, is one of these predatory nomads whose uh, ancestors came from uh, from deep in the steppe, um, probably from Mongolia. Um, so um, that that uh, was happening in the um, fourth, uh, fifth, fourth century A.D. Uh, And the next move, I won't go into in any detail, is the move of the Turks. They too started in um, uh, Mongolia or or Manchuria uh, and moved gradually further uh, south and further west until um, the Seljuk Turks and then the Ottoman Turks uh, moved into Europe and settled. And that's the beginning of of modern Turkey. This is a 7th century AD um, tomb group showing uh, the nomadic Turks on their horses, sort of fighting their way uh, for new territories further and further west. Um, The last stage of this, and this is where I shall end, the last stage of this movement, step movement west, uh, was um, organised by this guy, um, another Mongolian, um, Temulchin, who in 1206 uh, united a, a number of Mongolian tribes together, uh, and took the name Genghis Khan. I think this is a most amazing photograph. Uh, it's um, uh, you know you, you just wonder about the scale. What are you looking at? Well, if I tell you that uh, that is a normal human being, uh, you can get some idea of the scale. Um, uh, this is absolutely huge. It's a monument to Genghis Khan. Gingis Khan. And, and you can go in, and you can get in a lift, and you can go up in this lift. You actually got one of the horse's legs uh, into the horse's body, and you come out at a viewing platform on the horse's head. Uh, and you can see a person up there uh, now looking out. Uh, so this is the Mongolian, sort of freed from uh, Soviet domination. Um, creating or recreating their local hero, Genghis Khan. Um, And uh, an an amazing man he was. He was one of these predatory nomads, uh, starting again in the heart of of, uh, nomadism in in, in Mongolia and and then spreading out from there. And um, he created this huge Mongol empire. It's the largest land, contiguous land empire ever created. Um, and he starts in the the bright brown bit, um, and um, uh, then uh, he um, conquers the whole of the area uh, that is um, light brown right up into Uzbekistan. He goes to Bukhara in Uzbekistan and uh, at the steps to the Kalon Minaret. Uh, There he is, uh, talking to the local, the burghers of of, uh, Bukhara, and telling them about their sins and their omissions and so on, and that he was taking over, and at the end of his speech he had them all killed. So he conquered a huge area, and the green bit is where the next generation, his his sons, went and conquered. And the last bit of the conquest was when China was conquered by Kublai Khan. Um, And so within about 50, 60 years, suddenly this huge, um, nomadic empire w- was created. And it was, it, it had spread out of the area of normal nomadism and had spread into civilized areas and had taken over uh, quite a lot of the civilized East and, and a lot of the civilized West. Um, and this is a good place to stop because this was the last great flurry of people uh, out, of, out of the, the steppe uh, to impinge upon Europe. Thereafter, history changes a great deal, but that's a totally different story. Uh, And we go back, finally, to what made it possible. What made it possible was the environment, the environment of the steppe, and the environment of the desert, the environment of the steppe and the horse allowing this mobility um, uh, of people, and the uh, environment of the desert with the Bactrian camels Um, able to live in that desert, allowing the development of the silk routes uh, and the the networks of communication. So we come back to where we started, uh, that that history, the sort of history I've sketched out here, the the big history uh, of of Eurasia, um, is determined by... Us, uh, humans hardwired to behave in a particular way and to be acquisitive, always to be on the move, always to be looking out for new things, uh, but facilitated by the landscape in which they live and the, the animals with which they can develop this um, symbiotic relationship. Thank you very much.
2: That was Barry Cunliffe speaking at our 2016 History Weekend event in Winchester. By Steppe, Desert and Ocean, The Birth of Eurasia is out now in both the UK and the US, published by OUP. And if you'd like to find out more about future BBC History magazine events, do keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you can also find details of the latest issue of the magazine. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do listen in next time for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.